0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. We are here today to talk about Pakistan's continued crisis and how the country can end the military's role in politics. Um, and joining us uh, today to talk about this is Salman Rafi Sheikh, the Assistant Professor of Politics at the Lahore University of Management Sciences um this is part of our regular hima spaces um, and this time we're trying to unpack an article that we actually um kind of published quite recently on this topic um so we're hoping to delve into this a little bit deeper today um salman thank you for joining us
1: thank you so much for the invitation. It's a prayer. uh
0: so to just to kind of start things off um In the piece uh, that we're kind of unpacking today, you talk about um, a cycle of continued crises in Pakistan. So could you start Mm -hmm. by, you know, what's happening in Pakistan politically, for example, um, I remember reading about the local government elections, like what is happening politically in terms of the crises that you're speaking about?
1: I mean, the crisis that we're dealing with is is not directly linked with uh, the question of local governments in Pakistan. It it is actually uh, far from it. Uh, The crisis that we are facing today is that of macroeconomics and macro-political landscapes, uh, which have actually put the question of local governments uh, on the the backstage. And the way things have developed ever since with Uh, massive economic deterioration has uh, kind of made the question of local government irrelevant at the moment Uh, so the focus uh, currently is overwhelmingly on the economic question Uh, that is uh, the nature of the crisis that pakistan is experiencing today as 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 of today Uh, it's not i mean uh, some people would argue that it is primarily a political crisis some Argue that it is primarily uh, an economic question, but my understanding of this crisis is that it is a crisis of political economy in which embedded political actors uh, driving Pakistan's economy uh, since 1947 uh, are at the forefront of the problem. There, people trying to resolve Pakistan's economic crisis are, in fact, the same actors who created those more, the same problem in the first, in the first place. Uh, so. The cycle of crisis, by the cycle of crisis, I mean the same actors, both civil and military, uh, that have created these crises in the first place and they are the ones trying to resolve these crises by themselves. And this is nothing is going to happen, nothing is going to change in a meaningful, fundamental way uh, because uh, there is no capacity and there is no institutional will to do that. Because, why? Because it and the change requires some fundamental changes which directly affect these very political actors themselves. So there is no will in them to, to make those changes that will inevitably uh, reduce their hold on political and economic power. So that that cycle continues to spin in, in, in one direction and that is crisis and further deterioration.
0: Thank you. And I think um, that really has resonance um, across the region. You know, so many um, other countries are going through economic crises right now. Often there is this tendency to kind of um, kind of try to categorize things as purely political and economic. And I think that's a really important point. Um, Some of we also saw protesting Guadar as well, I think, uh, during this time. Yeah. Um, could you unpack, you know, what uh, what the kind of space that movement were and, you know, what uh,
1: that symbolizes? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the move, the, that movement in Gwadar is still ongoing. It, it's, uh, it, it has not diminished. Uh, it, it is still very much there. All, although the mainstream media in Pakistan does not give it that much coverage because of factors that have, again, to do with the way politics in Pakistan works, Uh, The the Gawadu movement uh, uh, is fundamentally about uh, or is directly linked with the position of Balochistan uh, within Pakistan's federal setup. Uh, I mean, Balochistan, although it is uh, the largest province in terms of territory, it's about 44% of Pakistan's total territory, uh, it's one of the richest provinces in terms of natural resources that it has, but it's all rest in terms of human development. In terms of economic development, in terms of any indicator of development that we can possibly use, uh, so Gawadar now happens to be a in Balochistan that is that holds immense strategic significance for for Pakistan and for Pakistan itself. Uh, ever since the beginning of uh, the CPEC project in Pakistan, Gawadar, by the way, is part of the CPEC project. Uh, local people have faced increasing levels of marginalization in their own lands and their protest, their basic demand is, uh, I mean, they are resisting their marginalization at the hands of Pakistan uh, government which is uh, directly represented not by civilian governments in Pakistan but by the military itself. Uh, They are facing this marginalization because of the way the CPAC has been or is being implemented in Gawadar specifically and in Pakistan and Pakistan generally, uh, that the local uh, business actors, local people are losing a very rapid space there on uh, traditional businesses to the Chinese. Uh, and that affects their livelihood, which entirely depends upon uh, the fisheries business that they have been doing in Kowadhar uh, for, I mean, for as far back as we can think. Uh, but the Pakistan state is not responding to their demands uh, in an unusual fashion. The, the response is very usual, that is repressive. Uh, for instance, it was about two weeks ago when the military commander based in Balochistan categorically said uh, that if more protests happen, everyone, they will put, simply put everyone in prison. And that is how the Pakistan state since 1948 has treated Balochistan. As an ethnic periphery that has no substantial, meaningful say in the larger political and economic structures of the Pakistan state, they are marginalized within the Pakistan state, and they are they are marginalized, increasingly marginalized within their own provinces, provinces, within their own localities. So that movement is basically protesting against uh, this increasing uh, level of marginalization within Balochistan, within Gawadar, and that. Uh, you know, broadly integrates with the way Balochistan, the politics of Balochistan within Pakistan has uh, happened since 1948. There is a very long history of the way uh, Pakistan state, the Pakistan state has, you know, kind of controlled uh, what some Baloch nationalists call Balochistan as its colony. So, yeah, I mean, this is what uh, broadly the movement is about. It is not deeply uh, disconnected with other movements going on in Balochistan, including uh, a militant separatist insurgency uh, being led by various uh, militant groups such as Balochistan Liberation Front, BLF, uh, and other groups. Uh, it, it, its demand is not a territorial independence of Balochistan, but its demand resonates uh, a very old demand in Balochistan that is that the local people of Balochistan must have primacy uh, and control over their own resources. That includes the, port, the strategic port of Kavadar that Pakistan has given to the Chinese on uh, a 40-year lease. Uh, that means that the local Baloch do not have rights and control over their own resources anymore.
0: Thanks, Salman. And I think you brought up a point that I was going to ask as well about, you know, you uh, briefly mentioned um, the kind of increasing security threats. Um, And in your pieces for us, you've often talked about military creep and the kind of hybrid Mm -hmm. martial law regime of the Pakistan state. Um, So what factors would you say are allowing this interplay between politics and the military to continue?
1: I mean, if, if we go back to history, the, one of the key reasons why the military is politically involved in Pakistan is colonialism. Uh, and the, the involvement of military's involvement in Pakistan can very easily be traced back to the way uh, the British co- Indian government uh, established the military forces for primarily internal security purposes. Now, after partition in 1947, uh, the Indian and the Pakistan states inherited that military, but in India, the military was unable to do, to play any direct political role because of one simple fact that the Indian National Congress, the main uh, party and the movement behind India's independence in India, was way too strong for the military to to fill the vacuum. But in Pakistan, the Muslim League, uh, which spearheaded the Pakistan movement, was too weak. Uh, there was a large uh, vacuum for the politically trained military to take politics in its own hands. So, military uh, uh, very simply has been involved in in Pakistani politics uh, since 1948. And uh, if we talk about Burjassan as we were just doing then, uh, the military was a directly involved player in securing Bhutistan's accession in 1948. Uh, uh, And ever since then, the military has been a major player in in Burjassan and it continues to be. Uh, uh a key reason why it has not changed or why it has expanded that is the has expanded in pakistan is its vast business empire that it has uh, that it has developed over the past few decades uh, that wealth that immense wealth that it is the material of the military's involvement in politics. I mean, the reason why it repeatedly intervenes is not necessarily political. It is economical in the sense that insofar as the military's primary motivation is to be in a position, in a political position to make decisions that suit its own interests, that suit its own economic interests. Uh, and that that economy, that wealth, uh, it's, it's not really undocumented but it is beyond the reach of accountability. Uh, and that is something that Lies at the very heart of Pakistan's major economic and political problems, political and economic instability. That there is an actor within the state that is more powerful, that it it controls the state whenever it wants, and it it takes over power. It abrogates the constitution whenever its interests are threatened. I mean, uh, if we go back to history, one of the key reasons why. there have been coups, like in, in 1999 or or before, or, or even after that. It is 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 that uh, that some civilian actors tried to control uh, power. Some civilian actors tried to exercise civilian supremacy, uh, and that is what brought them into conflict with the military establishment, which uh, resists these efforts. Uh, by all means. Uh, One of the key reasons, for example, uh, why Nawaz Sharif, a Punjabi politician, and the Punjabi-dominated military establishment uh, became sort of rivals in the 1990s was that the Nawaz Sharif government tried to uh, impose taxes on the military's industries and economic wealth. uh, And that created a wedge between uh, Nawaz Sharif and the military establishment. Nawaz Sharif happens to be a leader who was actually brought into politics by General Ziavulak himself. But then, 10 years later, the Sharif's own government was overthrown by the same military establishment because of the growing differences. Uh, now, those differences have uh, not disappeared completely, but they continue to... Uh, I mean, they're, 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 they are, there is a kind of hate relationship between these Punjabi civilian leaders and the Punjabi dominated military establishment. Uh, and none of these leaders uh, whether from punjab or from any other province has ever had to uh, you know bring the military's wealth uh or control the military's wealth or bring it under straight direct straight control uh, straight control and that means that the military as an institution remains materially strong economically strong and capable of exerting the kind of influence that it continues to do despite the criticism that we have seen uh, coming from both political and civilian institutions, from civil society from the academia uh, from the media the military as an institution remains strong and the core reason uh, for this is its material wealth and the fact that uh, there is no challenge
0: Thank you, uh, Saman. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very uh, important point and we'll probably uh, revisit that again a little bit later. But also to get into the heart of like um, the kind of things you're dealing with in your article, you've also kind of said that Pakistan definitely needs reform to kind of tackle some of these issues you were uh, speaking about. And you've um, very specifically said that it needs to revisit the 2010 reforms via the 18th Amendment. Um, mm-hmm. So for those who aren't like initiated in that, uh, what did that reform process achieve and um, where do you think it may be fell short,
1: if at all? So uh, the 18th amendment happened in 2010 and it was just uh, a year after an anti military lawyers movement uh, successfully toppled uh, the military regime of Pervez Musharraf. Uh, Now, one of the key demands of that movement was to demilitarize politics and restore the 1973 constitution. Uh, When it comes to defining what demilitarization meant, there was no clear idea uh, in 2007 and 2008 or even in 2009. It broadly meant uh, an end of the military regime of Pervez Mishra and nothing beyond that. So, that is why. When the reform uh, process started uh, in April 2009 and ended in, in May 2010, no meaningful constitutional changes were made to demilitarize uh, the polity in The only thing that the 18th Amendment process did was to amend uh, Article 6 of the 1973 Constitution which made it constitutionally impossible for the military to take over power. Secondly, Uh, It did that by depriving Pakistan's higher judiciary, that is the Supreme Court and high provincial high courts, of any power whatsoever to legitimize military coups as they did in the past. Uh, So ever since then, no military coup has taken place in Pakistan, but that is not necessarily a good news because the military has found another way to uh, influence and shape our politics in Pakistan, and that is hybrid involvement in, in the political sphere. Uh, uh, where the 18th Amendment process fell short was that, again, as I mentioned previously, that it seriously fell short of targeting the military's uh, material, the, the, the very material basis of the military's involvement in politics. Uh, the change in the Article 6 has not really ended the involvement of the military in, in, in politics because... Uh, the root cause of that involvement remains intact. Uh, what Article 6 did was it, it, it shut the door on the military for direct coups. It did nothing about indirect involvement and control of politics. And they have been able to improvise uh, since 2010 to do politics. They have changed their tactics, but the objective remains the same. He found its way back in Pakistan uh, within, I mean, very quickly after the 18th Amendment. Uh, you know, finished in 2010. Uh, the then PPP government uh, gave a three-year extension to the then military chief of Pakistan uh, General Shaukat Parvi And ever since then, we have seen all military chiefs uh, directly involved in politics, directly shaping Pakistan's foreign policy, directly, uh, uh, for example, uh, coordinating Pakistan's foreign policy with key uh countries such as the U.S., the U.K., Saudi Arabia, China, and even Russia at some points. Uh, uh, we got j- the, uh, the general who recently uh, retired general government, which also got a 3 years extension within this hybrid uh, democracy right. or some other hybrid martial law systems. Uh I mean, again, the key reason why the 18th Amendment process failed to undo uh, uh, the... Uh, this extent of military involvement in Pakistan was the fact that the movement that made the amendment possible in 2007 and 2008 did not have a demand targeting the military's uh, material basis, the, the material basis of the military's in politics. Uh, it was too vague for politicians to actually target it. Its magnitude was not high enough uh, for civilian liberal politicians, progressive politicians who were at the center of the 18th Amendment process. Uh, to push changes uh, to to, to the uh, domain where the military's actual political power lies, that is its immense economic wealth. So that is where the process, I think, fell seriously short, and that is where that process needs to restart for Pakistan to come out of this cycle of instability, both political and economic.
0: Thanks, Salman, and uh, thank you for that reminder as well. I think this article has kind of fresh relevance um, after the news about Musharraf's um, death as well, and kind of is a reminder of um, these kind of long standing issues. Um, You mentioned in passing that, you know, um, the military has been able to kind of shape uh, or play a role in things like, you know, foreign policy and shaping national policy. Could you give some like examples of how uh, that has played out in the past?
1: I mean, can you just elaborate your question? Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, foreign policy with regards to I mean, uh, one of the most uh, one of the best examples of shaping Pakistan's foreign policy is the role that the military establishment played uh, has played in uh, since past uh, since 2001 uh, when the war on terror started. Uh, the military was in power. The uh, General Pervez Musharraf's regime was in power, and it was that. Uh, regime that uh, decided that the the role that Pakistan would play in the war on terror and how that role will shape Pakistan's uh, ties with uh, with the with the West, the US uh, and and broadly uh, NATO countries. Pakistan was given uh, a very interesting stated, status that is uh, uh, a non status of non-NATO ally of the of the US in the war on terror. So, that that decision set a trajectory that Pakistan continues to follow, and uh, uh, it has refused to change. I mean, uh, in, in February 2022, Pakistan's Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, visited Moscow. And the intent was, uh, as far as I know, I can say, is was to establish uh, some sort of, uh, ties uh, with, uh, with president putin because Imran khan had been consistently snubbed by the by washington by the by, by the biden administration so he has his own reasons to reach out moscow but the military establishment was not happy with that move so we, what we see what what happened uh, within a month after the visit uh, general kamir kamar chaved bajwa said in a speech in Islamabad uh, that pakistan's uh, ties with With the US remain stable and strong and there are very strong reasons for that both military and economic and he said that Pakistan the reason why we prefer our ties with with the US is because the best military equipment or hardware that Pakistan that Pakistan military armed forces use is made in US it's not made in China it's not made in Moscow it's not made in Russia so uh, what he said Directly or indirectly, explicitly or implicitly was that he disapproved of the PM's visit to Moscow and that the military establishment does not support that kind of shift in Pakistan, that the military remains uh, in favor of developing strong strategic ties with the U.S., with the West, uh, not Moscow, uh, not even China because, I mean, uh, he, uh, he expressed his disappointment and, and, and various other military officials continue to express their dishonest. Uh, the kind or the quality of military equipment that they have received from China in the recent past and they continue to, to look look West uh, for their uh, for military's uh, defense and equipment and hardware. So this is how, I mean, they have shaped uh, Pakistan policy uh, in the past uh, 20 years and this pattern, this trend again goes back to uh, to the 1950s, when Pakistan uh, became an ally of the U.S. in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Uh, again, that, those uh, the facts that Pakistan, the military facts that Pakistan did the active role that Pakistan played in the Cold War mostly happened uh, during military regimes. Uh, for example, Ayub Spira, the era from 1958 to 1969, uh, Pakistan uh, practically eliminated all communist parties from within Pakistan. right? Uh, from 1978 to 1988, uh, General Zia's uh, government played a key role in uh, the Soviet-Afghan war uh, in, in Afghanistan. And again, during Mishraafrida, Pakistan became a frontline ally of the US in the war of terror. And again, even though the war in Afghanistan has ended, Pakistan as General Kamid javed bajwas statement of master do short volumes to aspire uh, for better and deep strategic ties with the us not with china not with, not with moscow even though uh, the pmln government that was in place between 2013 and 2018 had a clear preference for china it was that government that did uh, the cpec uh, agreement with beijing uh, but that has not kind of you know played out in the way that the students might have hoped for. And that is why uh, CPAC today has you know, been practically scuttled uh, out of the political landscape. Pakistan is once again uh, looking to the U.S. for favors uh, in terms of a favorable agreement with the IMF. Uh, even Kamar Chaved Bajwa himself uh, uh, called up U.S. officials uh, about six months ago. Uh, for an agreement with the, for facilitating an agreement with IMF, which they did, uh, by the way.
0: Thanks, Salman. Um, I think something you've also kind of touched on in your piece is how um, the military establishment kind of brings about political shifts, and specifically in the you know um, we can see this more recently um, in the kind of shifts that brought. The Imran Khan regime to power and ultimately kind of unseated him. Um, do you want to briefly touch on that as well?
1: Yeah, surely. I mean, the, the military has been doing this uh, again for a very, very long period of time. You see, when uh, General Sal Haq uh, was killed in, a, in an accident and it ended his dictatorship by an 11 year uh, long period in 1988, it was followed by what is uh, popularly known as. Uh, the decade of democracy in Pakistan, the period from mm-hmm. 1988 to 1999. But uh, what actually happened in that so-called decade of democracy is that f- at least four elected civilian mm-hmm. governments were repeatedly uh, toppled, uh, and the military uh, was a direct player in them. Uh, it played; it, it toppled those governments directly and indirectly. And how the way this happened? Uh, I mean, a, a specific. Article of the 1973 Constitution, that is Article 58-2b, which was originally inserted into the Constitution by General Zawak himself through his 88th Constitutional Amendment that he did in 1985, uh, was used. To topple these civilian governments, and, and the authority that did that was the president, who uh, President uh, Asif Khan, who was very close to the military establishment, and he would topple it, he would, he would use his constitutional powers to topple these civilian governments whenever they came into conflict with the military establishment. Uh, and that involvement during the 1990s, that involvement of the military establishment in politics has been proved, uh, in why. A case that was filed in the Supreme Court, the Asghar Khan case. Uh, its decision, its judgment, detailed judgment was announced in 2012, which clearly established the way the Inter Services Intelligence, the ISI of Pakistan, actually, uh, you know, played a direct political role in that period. Uh, so that role uh, shaped electoral results directly, brought one government into power, and when that government came into conflict with the military establishment. The military, What the military establishment would do is that it would start uh, supporting the oppositions uh, and they would make an alliance with them to double the existing civilian government. In 1999, when Nawaz Sharif was in power and he had won a two-thirds majority in the 1997 elections, there was, I mean, not uh, enough space for the military establishment to... Uh, to make an alliance with uh, political opposition to topple his government. So what they did is, the 1999, they came into power by themselves. Ever since then, uh, they have been involved uh, in politics directly and indirectly, Musharraf's uh, Musharraf regime ended in 2008. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Pakistan has seen a kind of hybrid democratic, hybrid martial system since then. That means the military remains deep in in politics. Uh, And it, you know, kind of has engineered political and electoral landscape in ways that suits its own interest. They they supported Imran Khan, they started supporting Imran Khan in 2012. Uh, Before 2012, Imran Khan was a kind of a political nobody. He did not have any presence in the parliament in 2012. But suddenly he becomes a major political player in 2012. 12 and 2013 uh, he remained a major political player until 2017 when he uh, his relationships with uh, the military establishment uh, started to conflict and uh, the military establishment decided to withdraw its support its in the name of becoming uh, politically neutral uh, i mean the fact that the military establishment became politically neutral in around 2017 2018 shows proves that They were not neutral before 2017 and 2018. Uh, And and even though they now claim to be neutral, uh, they are not. And this is evident from the fact how they continue to influence uh, uh, broader political and economic questions. For example, one of the key demands that the IMF has recently made and conveyed to the PDM coalition government is to reduce uh, uh, defense budget. Uh, which the military establishment has successfully scuttled uh, because they are not really interested in in resolving uh, Pakistan, the structural uh, factors that continue to uh, impact Pakistan's political and economic landscapes uh, negatively. Uh, Again, uh, you know, uh, they remain the most powerful actor. The military's power is one key element that has, uh, you know, that has made Pakistan's, the structure of Pakistan's politics uh, imbalanced in, in, in favor of one institution and, and the power of that institution uh, continues to shape the way things are moving and they continue to shape the direction in which things will move in the future, in the near future.
0: Thanks, Aman. I mean, given the, the, the pretty kind of disturbing things that you have been pointing out, I guess the question is, you know, that legislation alone, as you suggested in your article, do you think that's enough to bring about political reform? Or do you think this is just the first step and, you know, there should be that needs to follow?
1: Uh, I mean, legislation is not necessarily, it's not, surely it's not the first step. I mean, no legislation in Pakistan that, uh, 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 specifically a constitutional amendment that uh, brings uh, the military's wealth uh, to the civilian government is going to happen is uh, or can possibly happen without a broad political consensus relevant uh, civilian political actors. so the, the uh, prerequisite for a legislation uh, is a political consensus between the relevant political parties. I mean, there is a lot to learn. There is a lot for these political actors to learn from, for example, Indonesia where a political consensus on the military and politics and its business empire did develop uh, after uh, the Soeharto regime was uh, overthrown in 1998. Uh, so I consider and uh, that consensus or consensus was translated into legislation uh, in 2004 when the TNA law was passed, which specifically de the Indonesian military's uh, territorial structure, which would, during the Suharto regime, play a dual role, that is, uh, both political and military role. They had a parallel bureaucratic structure uh, called territorial structure of the indonesian military it was depoliticized through that law the military's vast business empire was at least legally brought under the control of the civilian establishment uh, the defense ministry but nothing of that sort has happened in pakistan so um, so that definitely is the starting point a consensus between these parties is a is the starting point and this consensus is not impossible to achieve uh the 18th amendment again is a landmark not only because it uh, transferred powers from the center to the provinces in Pakistan, but also because uh, it was—it it, it is an amendment, perhaps the only amendment in Pakistan that was passed unanimously. Uh, there was not even a single vote against this amendment, and it happened in 2010. Uh, and that parliament included political parties, specifically the Pakistan Muslim makeriam, which was an ally of the Musharraf regime, they even they supported the amendment. Uh, so achieving that consensus is not possible, but uh, it's not impossible, but consensus will happen eventually is uh, the key question. In 2010, that consensus became possible because of a very popular uh, mass movement against the military regime. Currently, we do not have anything like that in Pakistan, even though the economic crisis, even though the extent of economic deterioration should uh, push people out of their homes, onto the streets. But nothing of that sort uh, is happening at the moment. So uh, that is why I'm not sure how that consensus will happen. Uh, Another reason why this consensus may be difficult at the moment to happen is because uh, the military is directly involved in po- politics. There is no direct pressure on the military itself uh, that could, you know, kind of uh, squeeze its space to maneuver politics or manipulate politics to its own advantage. In 2008 and 9, the, that movement existed. And, and it exerted a lot of pressure on the military establishment, which made it impossible for the military to scuttle the 18th Amendment process. But today the situation is very different. There is no direct political pressure on the military. I mean, even though Imran Khan has targeted the military establishment, uh, but that the nature of that criticism is uh, is not. Uh, I mean, it's it's he's not really targeting the military establishment's involvement in politics. He's only targeting the military establishment because it withdrew for the PTI government itself, and he continues to favor. Uh, a constructive, so called constructive relationship with the military establishment, which means that uh, the lines of military establishment's involvement in politics remain open in Pakistan.
0: Thanks for that, Salman. And um, yeah, there, as you were speaking, I think you spoke about several parallels, which kind of reminded me of the Sri Lankan situation as well, um, specifically in terms of the economy. Um, but another thing that is kind of common um, to both contexts is um, in your piece as well, you we talk about the vast empire of the military and the need to cut defense spending, which you just spoke about as well. Um, and talking point here in Sri Lanka too, in the context of like reforms, but it's also somewhat uh, politically unpopular. Um, so do you think mm. there is a will to tackle this in, in Pakistan as well? Um, are there like parallels there as well?
1: I mean, I would not say that uh, the question of cutting uh, defense expenditure is on paper. uh, But what I would say is that this question is not part of the broader discourse or the political narrative that we see currently unfolding in Pakistan. I mean, no civilian act uh, that includes Imran Khan as well has spoken about cutting down non-development or defense budgets to to divert more and more resources uh, towards development. Uh, I mean, the reason why they do not talk, they do not target military's uh, financial interests is because they think that this will disturb their alliance with the military establishment. Because they think that ultimately they are going to need uh, uh, a friendly relationship with the military establishment uh, to either stay in power or come in, uh, come into power. I mean, for Imran Khan, it's necessary to limit his criticism on the military establishment's involvement in politics uh, and remain within uh, what he might think tolerable limits. Uh, For the the current PDM government, appeasing the military establishment is necessary to stay in power. And you see what they did uh, when they came into power in April 2022. uh, Despite massive economic problems, uh, the PDM government increased the military budget for fiscal year 2022 by 11%. Uh, and, and and again, I mean, the reason why they did is structural. The military is the biggest and most powerful political actor in Pakistan. And the civilian actors need uh, a, a friendly ties with the military establishment to stay in power. Uh, they were able to come into power. The PDM government was able to come into power because the military was because the military decided to withdraw its support for the PTA government. And they do not want that to happen to them as well. They want to stay in power, they want to continue to stay in power, and they want to win next elections, which are due uh, at the end of 2023. And the only way they think they can uh, stay in power beyond 2023 is through the military establishment. Uh, that is why they, uh, do, do, they do not target they do not like to target military spending all they have been doing is transfer the burden of economic reforms and taxations to the public to the masses uh, uh, and it, it is not just the military uh, defense expenditures that need to be cut down I mean a UNDP report of 2021 uh, investigated, uh, it did an investigation, the UNDP did an investigation and was published in 2021 and it said that uh, the Pakistan's various uh, elites, business elites that include the military itself receive about $17.4 billion in subsidies and tax concessions and tax exemptions uh, from the state of Pakistan, $17.4 billion annually. Uh, now, the UNDP... Uh, Pushed the PTI government, the Imran government, to do reforms, uh, so that this money that the Pakistan state just gives away, uh, can be brought back for development. But no political government has uh, is going to take steps uh, to do reforms uh, that do not transfer the burden of economic deterioration to the people. Uh, The reason why they are not going to act upon uh, the UNDP report is because. Most of those elites are part of the wider political establishment, including the military, civilian uh, establishments, industrialists, landlords, uh, uh, bankers, etc. Uh, they are part of the wider political establishment, they are, wide of the par- they are part of the parliament and they are unlikely to make decisions that directly hurt their own interests. So cutting down on military spending is, is should happen, it must happen. Uh, Uh, I mean, it's important for so many reasons, but for a meaningful shift in Pakistan's economic landscape, Pakistan needs to kind of do reforms, uh, highlighted in the UNDP report that that's a very incisive, very well-investigated report two years ago, but no policy change, but it has failed to trigger any policy change in Pakistan.
0: Um, that that's um really interesting, and you were you you're also like talking about you know uh, you've mentioned this kind of vast empire that military kind of has access to and bringing it under state control um so I also wanted to talk a little bit about you know whether there are mechanisms in place to address um for example corruption and abuse of power even if you know the state, the this kind of um, military empire were to come under the control of the state. Um, are there mechanisms in place to kind of address these issues, or you know what needs to change in this to be feasible?
1: I mean, what, what do you mean by mechanisms? Uh, um, mechanisms about corruption or mechanisms about?
0: Yeah, I, I meant about like, you know, watchdogs, for example, to address corruption. Um, just one example.
1: I mean, there are there, Pakistan does have uh, an, a, an institutional setup, an anti corruption institutional setup, uh, like the National Accountability Bureau, NAB. Uh, but again, uh, the way NAB works in Pakistan is uh, shaped by. Politics, uh, or more or more than by a genuine anti-corruption drive. Uh, NAP as an institution was established by the General Pervez Musharraf. When he came into power, he uh, you know started an, a proactive drive to eliminate corruption in, in Pakistan. Of course, I mean that was only a ploy that he used uh, to win popular support for his regime. But ever since then. Uh, NAP's primary purpose has been to target only those politicians that are not in line with an existing regime. I mean, the Musharraf regime increasingly targeted his political opponents. Uh, when Imran Khan came into power, he used NAP to persecute his political opponents. I mean, uh, starting with Nawaz Sharif and Pakistan's current Prime Minister Shabash Sharif, and almost the entire center of the Pakistan. Was, which is currently in power, uh, was in uh, because of these mad cases. So I mean, I'm not sure how that institutional mechanism is going to work in Pakistan when uh, you know the military establishment again was has. I mean, the military establishment exercises a lot of control on these institutions because it is part of the wider political system. It is able to shape the way these institutions work, and that includes. Not just the NAP, but also the higher judiciary, uh, where uh, the judges of Pakistan's higher courts uh, are in a defect alliance with the military establishment over these key national questions. Uh, even they have never targeted uh, the military's vast business empire, or it, even they have never highlighted the need for cutting down defense budget. I mean... Uh, uh, as judges, they are not supposed to comment on or pass on these questions, but in the Pakistani context, we have a judiciary that is very politically active, and it repeatedly takes slow motor notices on uh, petty political institutional matters, but even though it, it, it is most likely to take a suo motor notice on increasing fuel prices, it will never target the military establishment and or its vast uh, business empire. Uh, the NAP Uh, has uh, historically been run by retired judges, who are embedded within this political system, uh, who do not target uh, the core fundamental problems, uh, uh, structural problems that continue to shape Pakistan's uh, political and economic instability. So, I mean, if if we see NAB as a mechanism, I would say that it's very inadequate. as a mechanism to control corruption, as a mechanism to bring uh, Pakistan's uh, military establishments, business empire under control, what we need, again learning from Indonesia, uh, is a strong political consensus backed by popular support to control this uh, uh, hegemonic institution uh, in that that is the military establishment in Pakistan. Thanks, Sam.
0: Um, Manan, yeah. and what do you think? need to change uh, for all this kind of consensus to be achieved. I mean, you were also speaking about how even the economic kind of um, crisis in Pakistan has not really brought people out onto the streets and, um, you know, it hasn't really uh, brought people out to uh, kind of call for reform. So what do you think needs to change for
1: that to happen? I mean the political scenario in Pakistan is currently extremely polarized uh, and this has to do with the way Imran Khan's populist regime worked uh, between 2018 and 2022 and the way it has worked ever since then. I mean this polarization where political workers and supporters are on, on the extremes of, of politics, they, they are too wide apart from each other to fill a gap to find a minimum common ground uh, uh, to to start a movement, a sort of movement against uh, this system that wasm works. So what needs to change is uh, for these leaders, including Imran Khan, uh, to change his political tactics. I mean, if uh, if he, if he uh, or his PDI and the PDM government can uh, come together, uh, that can bring a meaningful shift in the way politics. Is currently happening in Pakistan, but again the question is how will that happen? The PDM currently is allied with the military establishment, and there is no incentive for them to reach out to Imran Khan to to develop a consensus between themselves. And even if the, uh, and the movement the 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 diet, uh, the, the movement uh, the PDM government starts uh, approaching Imran Khan for a broader political consensus uh, on necessary economic reforms, the military establishment is quite likely to withdraw its support uh, for the PDM government and it will fall down. Uh, And the PDM government calculates that if it fails to bring a meaningful change uh, in the current economic uh, situation, its uh, it's political future uh, is, uh, uh, I mean, it is very bleak, becomes very bleak. Uh, Elections are due at the end of this year, in 2023, so all they have all they are left with is like uh, ten months to to bring a change in the economy that their voters can support. I mean, that change. They do not think that they need to bring a fundamental change, but they think that if they can bring down energy and fuel prices, or they can stabilize the rupee in next eight to ten months, that will be sufficient for them to stay in power beyond 2023. So, I mean, their current interests do not favor an alliance with Imran Khan, an alliance that uh, is anti-military, that targets the military's vast business empire. Uh, polarization is likely to uh, continue to shape Pakistan's uh, politics, uh, both at the political party level and at the popular level. So, if anything positive, anything proper, progressive is to happen, this polarization. Uh, I mean, it an, becomes an impediment. As long as it is there, I do not see any possibility of a consensus uh, between these parties. But without consensus, no major fundamental political change can also happen. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Samman. Um, um, I think uh, now we will move to take um, questions from the audience. Um, if there's anybody who wants to raise a question, please um, tweet at himal at Himalista um, on Twitter or do uh, send across a direct message and um, we'll be taking your questions. Um, so please do that if you have a question that you want to ask. Um, in the meantime, um, I'm going to start off by just asking a question whilst we wait for people to write in. Um, someone who have also spoken about you know how ethnic minorities are kind of underrepresented in Pakistan's army. Um, and do you think that this alone is is that going to democratize the army? Um, again, um, there are kind of similar discussions here in Sri Lanka as well. Um, which kind of mostly talk about female representation. Um, and people are you know have are talking about whether that is going to democratize the police force. Um, so just wanted to get your
1: Thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, uh, the army's uh, internal ethnic composition is something that uh, I mean, we do not have exact uh, data on the military's uh, internal ethnic comp- composition. But uh, two years ago, I met a retired uh, army general, lieutenant general, who shared some figures with me, and it shows that uh, those figures show that. Uh, military's internal composition uh, began to change after 2010, after uh, the 18th Amendment. But again, uh, that change is, inst- within that institution, is very marginal. Uh, the army, as an institution, continues to be dominated by uh, one specific ethnic group, that is Punjabi, although people uh, from other provinces, from non-Punjabi provinces, like Sinh, Uh, Balochistan and KPK are getting representation within the military establishment but uh, their recruitment remains limited to the troops level. Uh, At the officer's rank, at the officer's score, their their numbers are very marginal. Uh, uh, Interestingly, when I mentioned uh, the possibility or the necessity of changing uh, the Pakistan military composition to another uh, army officer, Uh, I mean, I I got the sense that they do not like the idea uh, of changing this composition. I mean, they think that the Pakistan military is a national institution. And uh, even, I mean, for them, it does not matter whether uh, uh, the Punjabis get a portion of representation within the military establishment. Uh, They like to think of themselves as a national institution and that uh, this under representation of ethnic minorities. Uh, doesn't really matter, but uh, you see, I mean, uh, if if you talk if you talk to people from Balochistan, from Sin and from the KPK, for them, this is a major issue. Uh, the military establishment, with its skewed internal ethnic composition, becomes an army that represents one specific ethnic group and it and it projects uh, those at the national level.
0: Thanks, Salman. um and. I'm now going to just uh, read out a question that came to us uh, through DM. Um, So you uh, mentioned about how uh, Pakistan's judiciary is, you know, has uh, been very active. Um, And this person wants to ask whether you could explain some examples of how a more independent judiciary was able to bring about some kind of positive change in the Pakistani context.
1: How a more independent judiciary will bring a change?
0: Yeah, if if there are examples of how a more independent judiciary or more active judiciary uh, was able to bring about uh, kind of positive changes in the Pakistani context, if at all. I mean,
1: the, the judiciary in Pakistan is very active, but it, 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 the nature of its activism is, uh, is uh, I mean, it's it, it does not favor the constitution. It favors its own, I mean, the target of the judiciary has been its own institutional space within Pakistan's broader political landscape. Uh, it's trying to create a space for itself. It, it does not uh, engage or interpret the constitution in ways that uphold the integrity of the constitution itself. But, it, I mean, it... it, it Interprets the constitution in ways that enhances its own power as an institution. So, uh, judiciary judici is very active, it's already very active, and its activism post 2000 is actually a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Uh, the military, uh, the judiciary became very independent, relatively much more independent than it was after the 2009 lawyers' movement. Uh, and uh, it, every now and then, it takes a suo motor notice on every uh, public matter but again it, it 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 engages with the law it engages with the constitution in ways that enhances its own political profile its own institutional political profile than upholding the integrity of the constitution uh, itself so i mean that activism for me is part of the problem and it is going to remain a part of the problem in the foreseeable future at least
0: Thanks, Saman. And um, just going to like jump to another question as well. Um, so um, people have been kind of talking about, um, you know, increased. You know, we're seeing in the news increased militant attacks. Um, you know, especially in areas like Swat recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so this person wants to know: uh, Do you think this is reinforcing um, the kind of military power in the region as well? Um, enough cases of carbon-tight security threats uh, to allow for, you know, increased repression. given this kind of landscape?
1: I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's a very complex uh, situation, and there are a number of uh, factors uh, to the change in security landscape in Pakistan uh, since August 2021, when the Afghan Taliban took over Kabul. Soon after uh, August 2021, Pakistan, Pakistan state, uh, including the military establishment and the PDA regime, started uh, a process uh, of reconciliation and talks with uh, Pakistan, Taliban, TTP. And from September 2021 till November 2022, there was a process set in place that uh, offered, at one point, a complete uh, amnesty to the TTP fighters, they released hundreds of fighters uh, of TTP and I mean, it looked like the Pakistan state was more than willing to uh, to you know accommodate and help the TTP settle down in former FATA, that is really, former federally administered tribal areas which are now part of the TTP and in Sawa so uh, if you if you ask people. Uh, based in FATA and in SAWAD and if you ask them a question about the underlying reason of increasing militancy in their regions, they will point your attention to, to the establishment once again uh, that they are playing the same, uh, using notes from the same playbook that they used during the war on terror uh, to use the, ter- the threat of terrorism to you know get uh, funding and finances uh, from they allies in uh, the threat is there but uh, as I just mentioned the reason why we are facing this threat once again uh, is the way uh, this policy-making security sector uh, remains you know in the hands of specific or in the hands of a very specific institution and we uh, don't really know uh, how exactly uh, things move in those areas but what we know is uh, in the past one and a half year the Pakistan state uh, did almost everything to you know, reconcile with the Taliban help them settle down in those areas and a movement erupted in, in Sabah and in, in parts of Wata, of Wata where people actually have targeted the Pakistan state and the military establishment for, for its policy of uh, appeasement vis-a-vis the TTP. So, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, th- that is uh, how things uh, I see happening uh, in, in those areas, and the way I see, I mean, in the so called security threat uh, has become relevant because of some very flawed uh, decisions that the Pakistan state took, uh, and an old book that they continue to use uh, for their own. Survival.
0: Thanks, Aman. Um, and um, somebody also has written in asking about the the kind of perceived neutrality um, of the military, um, saying that you know the military has always positioned itself as kind of neutral, um, but we did see a departure from this um, specifically, which led to Imran Khan being unseated. Um, so, could you unpack that a little bit, and why there, you know, why we saw this departure from neutrality, or indeed whether the military actually is neutral as they say in the first place?
1: I mean, for, for me, uh, the narrative of neutrality uh, is just for public consumption. Uh, there is no qualitative neutrality of the military servicemen; they are not politically neutral, and uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, they they continue to again uh, support the PDM government. They continue to again, uh, you know, uh, target uh, the main it's uh, their main rival, that is uh, the PTA regime in Khan and his party. Uh, neutrality became a only when it suited them. You see, it's uh, they do not did no longer claim to be neutral. No such statements come from the military establishment because there is no need for that uh, anymore. Uh, again, I mean they are unlikely to become neutral at all because the underlying uh, logic of their involvement in politics remains intact, and that logic is a vast business empire that the military has under its control. So as long as as long as that logic remains intact. Uh, it is impossible for us, for anyone to believe that the military establishment became neutral at some point or will become neutral at, at some point. Uh, they, have their in, they have two big interests uh, to afford the government.
0: Thanks, Salman. Um, just wanted to also read out a couple of tweets um, which are kind of reacting to some of their, your comments. Um, one is a comment that there is some updated work on ethnicity within the military. This is from Ayesha Um And apparently um, she's saying that under Musharraf, a decision was taken to change the ethnic makeup of the military. Um, and says that the induction is certainly driven by organizational bias, but it's also a matter of population. Um, and there's also somebody who's kind of directly responded to the question we've raised in the space, uh, and has proposed kind of ways to try to end the military's role in politics. Um, and this person says uh, there could possibly be two ways, one of which you've uh, spoken about already, uh change within the institution by its own policymakers, and political parties having an agreement like the chart of democracy before an election yes. that whoever comes in power, certain reforms will be made. Um What's your response to to that? Do you think that that is something that uh, could be realistically kind of introduced? I mean, we
1: did have we did get a charter of democracy in two thousand and six, uh, when Nawaz Sharif and Benazir Bhutto developed a consensus between themselves. Uh, to, uh, I mean, essentially they agreed on a minimum a set of reforms that they at that time believed were essential. Uh, for resettling the uh, balance of power within Pakistan between civilian and military institutions, uh, but they, even though they agreed between themselves, and even though the 18th Amendment partly reflected that agreement, uh, even they could not do sweeping uh, changes uh, within in, in the constitution or, or introduced or introduce fundamental reforms on you know uh, squeezing. Uh, the material base of the military establishment, uh, the Charter of Democracy had no clause about controlling uh, the material basis of the military's involvement in politics. Uh, even Namaashreef even, and the fan, Bhutto, who had been uh, whose government were toppled twice, uh, uh, or combined four times in the 1990s, were able to develop a consensus among themselves uh, to, topple, uh, to, to undo the military's vast economic or business empire. Uh, So uh, if we need a new charter of democracy, that is uh, another way of saying a broad political consensus between political relevant political parties that has to be focused on this, uh, on targeting the material basis of of the military establishment. Uh, If if it falls short of uh, targeting this this particular uh, factor, I mean, I'm not sure how a new charter of democracy will... Help Pakistan in any meaningful way. Uh, there is already a charter of democracy, uh, uh, and uh, uh, if they can go beyond that charter, that could help Pakistan. If they stick to it, if uh, I'm, mean, that's unlikely to bring any meaningful change. It might change few things, uh, but it's unlikely to change the underlying uh, causes of Pakistan's uh, instability, both political and economic.
0: Thanks, Saman. And there's uh, one uh, other person who kind of raised a slightly different question um, and is asking, um, without press freedom and freedom of speech, is the development of any country possible and how can this uh, be solved in in Pakistan?
1: Uh, Can you repeat the question? Um,
0: Yeah, this person is asking, without press freedom and the freedom of speech, the, broadly the freedom of expression, uh, can the country actually develop and how should this issue be solved?
1: I mean, the constitution of Pakistan gives uh, freedom of speech and expression. Uh, it's one of the fundamental rights. It's not like that Pakistan does not have, or Pakistan does not give freedom of speech and freedom of expression. But yes, uh, the way this constitution right is interpreted in, in Pakistan where uh, the, the problem lies. Uh, frequently, what we see is uh, judicial interpretation of this this law or political interpretation of this law frequently limit the extent to which this freedom is exercisable or can be exercised. In uh, in the recent past, many journalists who are booked or uh, uh, put behind the bars because of the way they criticize the existing civilian governments and or the military establishment. Uh, So, yes, we do have uh, the right to free speech. But the question is, can that right be exercised uh, within this political structure? Uh, And the answer is no. I mean, uh, uh, when I say no, I mean, if if you start criticizing openly uh, the military establishment or even the political establishment, the chances are that uh, and that a case will be filed you, and the chances are that you will be behind bars uh, very soon. Uh, again, why this continues to happen? Why it remains a recurrent uh, political feature of Pakistani politics is because, of the way power is organized and power is exercised uh, in Pakistan at the institutional level.
0: Thanks, Salman. Um, I think that's pretty much all of the questions that we've
1: uh,
0: received. Um, do you have any kind of last comments that you'd like to make uh, before we wrap up?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, uh, I, the last comment I can make, uh, it's kind of a wish that I thought uh, the IMF would uh, you know, do something that the IMF would do. Uh, is if I mean the, uh, there can be two ways that the military establishment's politics in Pakistan can be can possibly be uh, reduced. So one is internal, if, if there is mass movement. Some, I mean something that happened in Indonesia as well. where mass movement led by students did eventually uh, significantly change the extent of the military's involvement in Pakistan in, in, in Indonesia after uh, 1998. Uh, I'm not sure something of that sort can happen in Pakistan at the moment, even though there is a big economic crisis. uh, And mass movements in Indonesia also erupted uh, against the backdrop of the 1997 financial crisis. But, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if if something like that can happen in Pakistan at the moment. So what can happen in Pakistan possibly at the moment uh, is perhaps an external pressure on the Pakistan state to... Uh, uh change the politics of resource allocation and uh, i i wrote another piece uh, for a different newspaper i tried to make an argument for the imf to put pressure on the pakistan state and not just the imf but also pakistan's other donors including saudi arabia to put pressure on pakistan to undertake reforms that include uh the re- generalization of the from the military establishment towards development but again uh mm-hmm. The the question is, will they do it? They will do it if it suits their own interests, but they will not do it if it does not suit their interests. Uh, so, I mean, I'm. It's kind of it's an argument that moves in circles, uh, and there are too many contingent elements that need to come together for any meaningful political and economic shift to happen in Pakistan. It's not just one factor. Uh, that can bring a meaningful change in a country like Pakistan uh, where the military establishment has been in power both directly and indirectly for almost 75 years now and that is too long a period uh, of institutional domination uh, for any single factor to change.
0: Thanks, Salman, and um, thank you so much for joining uh, us today and kind of unpacking your article a little bit more for us. Um, for those who haven't read it yet, um, it's actually pinned at the top of this space here, so do uh, go there and kind of uh, read through um, that article. And um, do visit uh, himamag.com uh, to view the rest of our kind of story. Um, And check out our membership plans as well at himalmag.com slash membership. And um, we'll be having more of these um, regularly, so do watch the space for me. Thank you so much
1: for the invitation. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. and Thank you everyone for listening and thank you for all your questions and comments. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone.